Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Wait. <laughs> I am Justin Burke, joined tonight by Dr. Krista Chu Manchu and our wonderful first-time producer, Dr. Tess Curran. Say hi, Tess. Hello. Welcome to the show. We are excited to have you for, for round one, and I think it went well. How does it feel to be an official Cribsider? Um, it's a true honor. Uh, well, true we, honor. <laughs> we are lucky to have you. You, you crushed the episode. Uh, yeah, a great totally. guest, a great script. Tonight, we are joined by Dr. John Levin to discuss bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Uh, but before we do that, Chris, tell us about the show. Yes, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Jonathan Levin. He's a neonatologist and a pediatric pulmonologist at Boston Children's Hospital. He's also an instructor at Harvard Medical School. He's one of the guideline authors of the American Thoracic Society's Clinical Practice Guidelines for Outpatient Respiratory Management of Infants, Children, and Adolescents with Post-Prematurity Respiratory Disease. He provides longitudinal care to babies born preterm from the time they're in the NICU through discharge and into childhood. And he particularly focuses on respiratory and breathing complications of prematurity. He teaches us about the multiple phenotypes of BPD, the evidence for and against many different neonatal ICU treatments, and how to approach these patients as they age in a primary care setting. So we'll go ahead and get started. So today we are welcoming uh, Dr. Jonathan Levin uh, to the Cribsiders. Very excited to have you. Uh, Dr. Levin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Justin and Chris and Tess. It's really wonderful to be here. Uh, we are excited to have you. We're an informal fun group. And so we asked before the show if it's okay to call you John. So we'll, we'll stick with that going forward if that works for you. And we would love to, to know you a little bit better. Um, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, maybe in a one-liner, maybe uh, something including that um, you have an interest in that's outside of medicine? Sure. Um, so in medicine, I took a bit of a unusual path. Uh, some might say a slightly masochistic path. I, I'm a dual trained neonatologist and pediatric pulmonologist. Uh, and I work at Boston Children's Hospital uh, along with Tess. And I have a specific interest in lung diseases of prematurity, which includes bronchopulmonary dysplasia and BPD. So I, I've always been interested in how to prevent them in the NICU, how we care for these babies and families in the NICU. And then I think the really fun part of what I get to do do is I, I actually partake in their like long-term and longitudinal care even beyond discharge for these infants and families. Um, and, and that's that's what led me to do the dual training. Uh, outside of medicine, um, I have two young kids, uh, four and 21 months, or uh, completely a handful, but a ton of fun. Uh, and they adore each other, which is quite sweet uh, most of the time, 90% of the time. Uh, I'm an avid runner. And despite being in Boston and doing all my training in Boston, I grew up in New York. So uh, I am a lifelong Yankee fan, and that, that has not changed despite me uh, moving roots up to Boston. Uh, that's right. awesome. You're like the, the Peds Palm Crit, like the, uh, the adult version <laughs> 
of the the Paul and Craig combo. That's uh, that's great. And um, we don't really have any baseball elite. I guess I was an Orioles fan, if, if anything. So uh, they have never Sorry. been any threat to the yeah Red Sox or the Yankees. So they kind of <laughs> just fall to the bottom. One of my favorite uh, ballparks, though, I will say. Beautiful park. Now, John, you, you said you're you're a runner and you're in Boston. Do you, have you ever run the Boston Marathon? Uh, no, I, I when I say avid runner, I mean like three, four miles, um, <laughs> to be clear. But uh, I, we live right by the marathon, actually. It was just a few weeks ago, and we, we took the kids to watch it, so they, they had a blast. Nice, nice. Is there anything recently in like pop culture that you've just like enjoyed recently that you want to share with the rest of uh, our listeners? Hmm. All right, this is my nerdiness coming out, but... Uh, I'm, I've always been a big Star Trek fan, like, you know, grew up with dad watching a ton. So I uh, was watching, what is it? It's Star Trek Discovery. And I like just watched the last episode last week. And I was just blown away. The uh, Sorry for spoilers. I should maybe a warning, but I was blown away <laughs> from the fact that uh, Stacey Abrams, the politician, came in to play the president of Earth in the last episode. I thought no it was way. absolutely hilarious. Oh, so, whoa. That's yeah. amazing. What a cameo. Seriously. Uh, that's amazing. That's cool. That's we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, I, I'm excited cool. about the uh, the Christopher Pike um, episodes. I, I I think a couple of them already come out. I just haven't gotten a chance to catch up, but uh, I'm excited about those. Neither have I. I was too busy preparing for this podcast. <laughs> Did you guys see? There's a there's a uh, New York Times crossword puzzle not that long ago where it said eight letter word for the best sci fi series, and. Uh, it worked both Star Wars or Star Ooh, Trek, uh, ah. depending on how you filled out the, the crossword. Amazing. They're, they're smart people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's definitely times. purposeful. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So let's uh, let's dive into some content. Um, we, uh, Chris and I, always get nervous around babies, uh, specifically patients <laughs> who are babies, um, specifically babies who are patients in the neonatal ICU, because it's been a while for both of us. And so... This is going to be a great review for us, but I think a lot of very helpful stuff that would have been helpful for me um, in the NICU as a resident in training. And to your point, Jonathan, I think we see a lot of kids that have uh, chronic lung disease from infancy. And so excited to get into this. And so we'll go ahead and get started back in the NICU. A uh, throwback to residency. And we're going to say that we're the listener, a pediatric resident in the neonatal ICU, uh, called to an emergent delivery of a 28-weeker. Mom's a 35-year-old G2P1. She had a high-risk pregnancy because of gestational diabetes and preeclampsia. She was ultimately administered magnesium sulfate and dexamethasone prior to delivery. The infant is delivered via vaginal delivery due to preterm uterine contractions, and APGARs are only four and six at one and five minutes, respectively. Given some persistent desaturation, some irregular respirations, the kiddo is placed on positive pressure ventilation and rapidly transferred to the ICU to us for further intervention. And so an unfortunately uh, common, uh, I think, scenario in a premature child, but uh, talking about this concept of bronchopulmonary dysplasia or chronic lung disease in infancy, can you walk us through what is BPD? What is the definition? What is this underlying pathophysiology of these types of patients? So let me start why it's so important to talk about BPD. So, you know, first of all, prematurity, about depending on the year and the estimates, like 10 to 11% of babies are born preterm in the U.S. And obviously a smaller subset of that are the extreme preterm infants, which are at highest risk for a number of adverse outcomes of prematurity. And in fact, if anything, 
prematurity rates are probably slightly going up. That might be having to do with more complex maternal uh, medical conditions or, or you know, mothers who are pregnant um, who have more medical conditions. That being said, a lot of our outcomes in neonatology have improved over time. You know, the care has gotten better, more advanced. The one that hasn't is BPD. So that's actually, you know, if you look at the numbers of prematurity and you look at these outcomes, everything has sort of a, the, the right direction and BPD is totally stable. Like we haven't really made a dent in the rates of BPD. So there's about 10,000 kids a year probably uh, who, are, who are being born and end up getting BPD. And it's it's the most common complication of prematurity. Thinking about like pediatric pulmonary conditions, like so it's probably the second most common after asthma, the second most common uh, condition that, um, you know, presented to, to pulmonary specialists. So you know, there's a lot of kids who are, you know, affected by BPD. You know, so what happens in these kids, it, it, you know, the way I describe it, it is BPD starts with an arrest of lung development. And, you know, you might remember from med school embryology, probably not remember from med school embryology, you know, there's these different stages stages of lung development. We all have like pneumotics uh, to remember them. Every pulmonologist can see alveoli, uh, embryonic, pseudoglandular, canalicular, saccular, alveolar stage. So basically, you have these infants who are being born at kind of that middle of lung development. And while respiratory distress syndrome, kind of what you were describing in this case that this kid's likely going to have, is largely due to surfactant deficiency. Even kind of when you get past that phase, these kids have lungs that are just underdeveloped. The alveoli are, you know, there's fewer of them, they're more simplified, they're kind of thinner. And then on top of that, they're getting exposed to oxygen in the NICU, ventilators, you know, other inflammatory things like infections, and that, that, that impacts the lung development too. You know, so it's true that, you know, between antenatal steroids, surfactant therapy, we've kind of made a lot of advances in neonatology. Those really haven't impacted the rates of BPD, just because it is ultimately when these infants are born early, you know, their lung development is still is arrested at that early age. And can I ask, there's a lot of terminology that I feel like always falls into the one liner of the NICU. It's, you know, BPD, chronic lung disease, surfactant deficiency. Are these all describing kind of the same process or is BPD a preferred terminology? Yeah. So you can think of BPD as like an out, a later outcome of infants with RDS, with surfactant deficiency. So it's kind of describes the later process. You know, technically we don't make the diagnosis until they're about 36 weeks postmenstrual age um, of officially a BPD. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a number of definitions that exist out there for BPD, which is also one of the confusing uh, parts of it. Um, you know, but but even so, I think you'll hear, you'll see a lot of like evolving chronic lung disease in the NICU. And those are the kids, even if they're not at 36 weeks, you still know that they have significant lung disease and are likely headed that direction. And one thing that our wonderful producer, uh, Dr. Tess Curran, has pointed out um, that I kind of did a little more reading about because I hadn't uh, seen these terms, but there's some terminologies of old BPD versus new PP, uh, BPD. Can you talk a little bit about that? What are the, What's this old versus new BPD? Yeah. So, I, I, you know, when BPD was first described, it was in the 1960s. And as you can imagine, neonatology was a vastly different field at that, uh, at that point. So when it was first described, you were talking about infants who were born, like, I think the mean gestational age in the first paper, it was Bill Northway that that, that described it, was like 34 weeks, right? And that's going to be very different than the experience today. I mean, for a 34-weeker to end up with, you know, BPD would be incredibly uncommon these days. So, you know, I think old BPD really was uh, reflects 
chronic changes, fibrosis, inflammation that was due to prolonged oxygen exposure, prolonged ventilation, while new BPD is more of that developmental arrest. It's sort of these lungs, if you can imagine, they're just, you know, if you were to do a biopsy of them, not that we routinely do that, but if we do were to do a biopsy of them, they would just be very simplified. If you think back to like your med school histo- you know, histology, it's, it's the alveoli are just fewer, they're thinner, um, the, the vessels are, are few and thinner also, and probably somewhat dysmorphic. And that describes more new BPD. And is there a scale of, I'll give you this one, Chris, I'm sorry. Is there a scale of uh, severity of the disease, a grading system or um, some other measure of how bad is this child's BPD or how bad is this child's chronic lung disease or fat deficiency? Yeah. So the most common one that uh, I think people still use is the mild, moderate, severe definition. It comes from actually 2001. So it's over 20 years old and it was really just a consensus workshop you know, I'll say it's BPD is one of it's it's an odd disease with definition in that it's defined and the severity is defined by the treatment you're using for the disease, which is the amount of oxygen you have to give to the baby. So, you know, t- classically using that 2001 definition, you know, mild BPD are kids who require support or oxygen for 28 days at first, and then are off all support at 36 weeks. Moderate, more or less, are kids on oxygen therapy at 36 weeks, and severe is going to be kids uh, who are require some kind of either non-invasive or invasive ventilation at 36 weeks. And this is among under 32 weekers, and there's kind of a modified definition if you're above 32 weeks of, of your original gestational age. You know, that's actually been revised a few times uh, since then. So I think there are probably are newer definitions that that are somewhat simplify that, frankly, and actually were based on looking at outcomes of the neonatal research network, which is this large you know consortium uh, across the country looking at practices in neonatology and outcomes. Um, so so there's a one called the Jensen definition from Eric Jensen that that essentially says grade one, two, three. That sort of simplifies it. It's grade one BPD if you're on a low flow cannula at 36 weeks, grade two if you're on high flow nasal cannula or like non-invasive, so like CPAP. And then grade three would be the kids on who are still on positive pressure, like invasive ventilation at, at 36 weeks. So since the definition is based on at the time of 36 weeks, once you get classified, you don't ever like move your classification if you get better or worse. Is that correct? It, you know, it's a great question. Once you know, once you have the diagnosis at 36 weeks, that remains in your history at the very least. But one of the reasons that we love taking care of this population is that even in, you know, healthy term kids, there's ongoing lung growth and development that happens, you know, after birth, particularly in the first two years of life and, you know, likely up until age 10 or so. And that's still true in these kids who have BPD. So we really try to create this sort of pro-growth, pro-lung development environment for them that allows them to recover some of their uh, lung function and, and, and growth during that time. So even though they might have that diagnosis of severe BPD, you know, they'll still be on a positive trajectory you know, after birth. And for our patients specifically, it seems like there were a lot of risk factors and um, prematurity and high-risk pregnancy and even some of the medications potentially. What What are the risk factors for someone for uh, developing chronic lung disease or BPD? And and why might one premature child develop it and not another? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and, uh, you know, it's one of those 
We still don't know all the answers to this, of course. Gestational age is definitely the number one risk factor. So the lower the gestation, the higher risk of developing it. You know, probably in the kids who are on the really extreme premature kids under 28 weeks or so, you're going to see upwards of 80% of kids ending up with BPD. That'll go down as you kind of get closer to 32 weeks. Um, But there's other risk factors too. So for example, kids who are born small for gestational age, or kids who were, had mom had preeclampsia, or mom was a smoker, and that might have in, interfered with some of the placental blood flow. That probably impairs pulmonary growth in utero and therefore has an effect on their lung development postnatally too. Postnatally, there's a lot of risk factors too. So, you know, it's interesting we're talking about this infant on day one, but this, what's going to happen to them in the next few weeks will also modify their risks of developing BPD. So, for example, kids who have infections, or maybe were born to a mother with chorioamnionitis, or had necrotizing enterocolitis or sepsis, that inflammatory environment is not good for the developing lungs, and that's going to increase their risk of BPD. Kids who are on prolonged mechanical ventilation and you know are going to be at highest risk for BPD, particularly kids who need it for more than seven days of life, um, kids who need oxygen. Uh, you know, and that's because the, there's oxygen toxicity, there's volume trauma, which is basically over distension of these very immature lungs, barotrauma, which is high pressure to these immature lungs. Um, and then there's other things that you know uh, might give give you some PTSD from the NICU, like PDAs, the patent ductus arteriosus. So you know the ductus arteriosus, of course, is an in utero um, connection uh, between the aorta and the the pulmonary arteries um, that closes typically, but in preterm infants can stay open. And we know that there's a clear association between kids who have a PDA and developing BPD, probably because of extra blood flow to their lungs and over-circulation, but it's actually unclear if treatment improves you know, the outcomes of BPD. So that's kind of an interesting one. And then there's there's likely some genetic influence too. There's not you know one gene that's like the BPD gene and puts them at risk, but there's been a number of like larger studies that have identified you know some some risk factors among like a large pool of genes. Do we see any like familial like traits? Like if, if like we, you know, like first degree relatives or anything that, you know, they've, they've had all their other preemies in the family that they've also had BPD. Do we see any of that sort of happen? There's, again, there's probably some percentage that's relatively small, you know, I don't can't quote the exact number, but it's in the 20 to 30% range that might be kind of that genetic exposure. But, you know, for example, I'm thinking of babies I'm taking care of now where, they're identical twins, right? And one developed BPD and the other, you know, one developed severe BPD and the other one has mild BPD. So, you know, I think it really speaks to the fact that, you know, their in utero growth was very different and their postnatal life was very different too. So John, one one question we have. So you were talking about how ventilators can actually cause, maybe there's some sort of effect and cause trauma within within these neonates that increase the risk for BPD. What, what are some of the strategies that you do with the, the ventilator to re- minimize these inflammatory effects? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, ventilators are saviors in some of these micropremies and let them survive. At the same time, they add injury to their developing lungs. So you get both sides of the coin there. The trend in neonatology over the last probably, you know, one to two decades has really been to move towards non-invasive ventilation whenever possible. So using things like CPAP or NIPPV, as, uh, which is nasal intermittent positive pressure ventilation, as kind of the mainstays to treat respiratory distress syndrome to really prevent and, and minimize exposure on the ventilator. And even for kids on the ventilator, 
we really try to take a very gentle approach to ventilation. Like we let their carbon dioxide be a little bit higher than maybe you would have tip another kid's called permissive hypercapnia. We've realized that, you know, oxygen targets, there's a lot of questions still about, you know, what the exact oxygen target should be, but, you know, probably in the low 90s or so, is, it seems to be the right number for these kids. Um, and that helps decrease some of the toxicities when you're on a ventilator too. Excellent. Um, yeah, I remember I, my favorite, the titrating to jiggle is how we did the jet settings. I don't know if that was actually the um, correct vent settings, but I, it will never... That will that's never still, leave me. That's, that's still what I teach when they say, "How do you choose the initial settings?" It's a in all seriousness, it's a good point. And we definitely have these sort of advanced um, types of ventilators called high high frequency ventilation, either the jet or the oscillator, kind of by common names. Um, and there are some centers that that use that kind of as a primary way of ventilating these these little babies to help prevent some of the you know the volume trauma and the barotrauma that I talked about before. Um, but it's not really been something that's uh, consistently shown in the literature as a good primary prevention strategy. Um, and, you know, there, there's, uh, so, so I would say it's, it's not a universal practice by any means. I, um, I know my time in the NICU was very humbling, as, as I mentioned before we started. And I uh, am excited to talk about treatment because that was one where I, uh, you know, sometimes there was a lack of evidence basis or there seemed like there was some different viewpoints. I, I remember very specifically one anecdote where I had just started, I think it was an intern, started on the weekend, and we were talking about treatment of um, one of these patients with chronic lung disease, specifically with diuretics. And so I'd love to talk about some of the other things, but I remember diuretics, the attending, you know, was like, oh, we need to be diuresing, diuresing. And it was like, I don't know how to do a volume exam on this 30-weeker, but I, I trust you. You seem much smarter than me. So we diuresed. And the new attending came on and said, why are we diuresing? This is ridiculous. <laughs> so we stopped. And then I think a third attending restarted. And then we had the attending, this Dr. Nodi, who was seen as like the, the deity around there. And it was like, he'll know what to do. And he gave this very beautiful description of the pathophysiology which I completely forget now, to explain why in this particular child, we should definitely diurese. And it was like, great, we'll start the diuretics again. And he was like, no, 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 I'm just the weekend attending. The next attending is coming on tomorrow. Just do what they want you to do. Um, but I would love to, uh, that was my NICU antidote, but I would love to hear your antidotes of, of treatment of, of BPD, steroids, caffeine, surfactant, nitric oxide. What do we got? What, what, what's in our toolbox for for these uh, kiddos and their little lungs? Yeah, Justin, you probably just described me like medicine, if, if certainly neonatology in a nutshell. So we could probably just stop here. But the, um, <laughs> uh, uh, so, you know, uh, well, I'll, I'll get to diuretics. I, I, I always actually start when we talk about treatments. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that, that, that certainly don't work. There's some things that are evidenced. Uh, you know, I, re I recently, you know, saw, you know, People describe treatments in neonatology as, you know, things that work, things that were maybe a little bit foolish to pursue, but at least weren't a bad idea, and then things that were clearly a bad idea. Um, <laughs> so, so you know, th uh, things that like don't work, you know, and, and I, I'll actually start with this. So surfactant. So surfactant, of course, is an incredibly important medicine in neonatology and has saved countless babies worldwide. Going back to thinking about what BPD is, so surfactant does not decrease rates of BPD. Um, it, it improves RDS, which we think obviously, you know, that will minimize how much ventilator exposure they, they, these kids uh, get and, and certainly 
beneficial for them, but it's never been shown to actually improve rates of BPD. And I think that actually goes back to the fact that, again, it's a developmental arrest, right? Um, and, and, and you know, timing growth is probably the most important treatment, frankly, in these kids and, and, and uh, trying to minimize the toxicities that they get. That being said, there are some evidence-based therapies beyond that. So caffeine you mentioned. Um, you know, for uh, listeners who have not rotated through a NICU, it might sort of surprise you that we put these all these preemies on caffeine. Um, and it's actually a really interesting backstory. It, it, it was, uh, we used to use sort of more toxic medicines like theophylline as ways to treat these babies, sort of do silly things with their breathing and just have pauses in their breathing and the nurses run over the bedside, kind of like rub the babies, you know, back a bit and go save a life, as we say. And then they, they remember to breathe again. And, uh, you know, they say, well, if, you're, if the kids just desaturates like that, just turn up the oxygen. But you don't want to do that either because that's not so good for their developing eyes. So, you know, there were medicines that kind of stimulate to, them to breathe like theophylline, but that was like very toxic. So uh, then they realized that caffeine was a, in the same medic- medication class, the methylxanthine class as uh, theophylline and, and actually believe it or not, carries way less toxicity. That being said, so it's one of the better trials in, in neonatology is it's the CAP trial. So they did it, you know, uh, to really like when you, when you're sort of hearing that story, you're like, well, that sounds okay, but is it safe to give like a premature baby caffeine? Is that going to affect their neurodevelopment? So that's really all they were trying to do is to look and see like, okay, at least is it safe or not? And, you know, basically it showed like, not only did it work, but their 18-month neurodevelopmental outcomes were better, the kids who were exposed to caffeine in, in this randomized trial, and they had less lung disease. They had less BPD. And that's probably because by stimulating them to breathe, it helps them wean off the ventilator. It helps them wean off, sort of, uh, you know, helps them avoid getting extra oxygen. Um, so caffeine is a, actually a, a sort of, in a lot of like quality improvement bundles, a mainstay at improving rates of BPD. Um, we talked a bit before about non-invasive ventilation, um, you know, and, and sort of using that as like a primary means of rescue for respiratory distress syndrome and not just like intubating every baby and giving them surfactant. Uh, and that's actually been shown like in meta-analyses, not in any one study, but in meta-analyses to, to reduce rates of BPD. Um, you know, not to get too in the weeds about ven- like ventilation strategies, but, uh, you know, for, for those who are more interested in ICU fields, there's differences in kind of how we ventilate, whether we're targeting a, a volume or we're targeting a pressure. It's like pressure ventilation or volume ventilation. And in short, it seems like volume trauma is worse than barotrauma in these kids. So if we limit the amount of volume we get, so if we target a certain volume that they get and set that as our parameters on the ventilator, that's probably a safer strategy. And again, there's, it's in, in, uh, I will say in neonatology that we have like a really strong um, group of Cochrane meta-analyses that, that kind of group all the studies together, but that's also been shown to help prevent BPD. So good nutrition is also incredibly important. Pr- primary provision of uh, mother's own milk, uh, you know, has been shown not in large randomized trials, but, you know, has at least observationally been shown to reduce lung disease. And then there's all the medications that like, we, we sort of think about ways to rescue kids. So you mentioned diuretics as one. Diuretics has never been shown to decrease rates of BPD. They are frequently used. I use them at times. You know, it's not to say that we don't. Um, but I think of it as diuretics. What it definitely gives you is it gives you this sort of short-term boost, right? The short-term improvement in compliance. And there are certainly select kids who might benefit more, like kids who have like an ASD or a VSD, something that causes them, or a PDA, something that has a little bit more overcirculation. But chronic exposure to diuretics is never, they kind of, the kids adapt to them pretty quickly. It's never really been shown to, to reduce rates of BPD. Um, they're still widely used. Uh, 
steroids. So antenatal steroids are good. We know that as a separate conversation is interesting. The original trials were like in the 1970s and it wasn't widely adopted in practice and been until about 20 years later. So talking about implementation Hmm. medicine is that's a whole separate interesting Mm. conversation, but that's clearly a good thing. Um, Postnatal steroids. So giving the kids steroids. So this interesting story here, the pendulum has swung both ways. So frankly, before our time, (laughs) the high-dose steroids were pretty frequently used because they worked to get kids off the ventilator. I mean, there was clearly an inflammatory component. You gave them like big doses of dexamethasone and then they weaned off. And then they did trials. And this goes in the category of, you know, things that weren't so good to do. And that early exposure to dexamethasone actually had was was associated with higher rates of bad neurological outcomes, including cerebral palsy. So now that's like an AAP, like no-no, like it is a guideline statement, do not give premature infants, at least, you know, prophylactically high doses of early dexamethasone. So then it swung the other direction, right? And everyone said, well, we clearly shouldn't be using any steroids in these kids. And that probably was too much either, especially because you're trying to basically group all these kids as the same, when in reality, there's going to be kids who are at higher risk than others for developing lung disease and, and you know, even the neurologic outcomes, which tend to associate with the lung disease, there's going to be benefits for treating it. So there's been a lot more studies since then, um, looking at the kind of specific doses and types of steroids. So you have dexamethasone, you have hydrocortisone, we use some prednisolone, though that's frankly, that's that's less studied in neonates. Um, you know, and 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 not a lot of studies that directly compare one to the other. It's 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 interesting. We've had like a lot of great trials with steroids, but we there's still a lot of unanswered questions. But at least the meta analyses really sort of suggest that, and and some of the recent trials that included hydrocortisone that that probably do suggest that dexamethasone seems to be more at least more effective than hydrocortisone at at preventing BPD. And I think because of that story with dexamethasone and early exposure, we try to wait a little bit. So we, we, you know, typically many places will have guidelines and this is what we do where we wait to the, we kind of assess their risk of developing BPD at around two weeks of age. And if they're at high enough risk, then we kind of, then we consider the, the risks and benefits of using dexamethasone in particular and a lower dose of dexamethasone than had been, you know, previously used before. Um, And that's based on, you know, studies seems to be, you know, have, have at least, reasonable neurologic safety and, and efficacy that approach was that from the the dart trial is that the one yeah the, so darts um uh great name trial uh <laughs> I, the it was it's actually an interesting story so um that was a trial uh about 15 years ago i want to say um actually based out of australia that uh, looked at low dose dexamethasone. So specifically, it's like ten a ten day taper of dexamethasone, where the total dose is like zero point eight nine migs per kilo. So it's it's relative, which is relatively low dose, and looking if it was effective. So the the truth about the trial is it did seem to be, you know, effective at reducing. You know, getting kids off the ventilator, reducing their oxygen requirements, um, getting them extubated. The trial was actually stopped short because of difficulties with enrollment. So, you know, it was uh, you know a smaller trial than I think was then originally designed. It was I think only about you know thirty to forty kids um, in each group. Uh, but you know, I think based on that, and and that's kind of been adopted in in both ob- other observational trials too. That that's a, just a commonly used protocol um, uh, for for steroid administration. 
And I wanted to follow up to you because you mentioned mother's milk. And if I remember right, this is actually one of the indications where donated breast milk is a big high yield uh, treatment. Is that is that right? Am I remember. So that? it's it's in the NICU. We know that donated breast milk does reduce rates of necrotizing enterocolitis. It's not as good as mother's milk. To, mother's own milk, to be clear. But as an alternative, you know, especially there for many reasons, you know. You have these sort of moms who are just been through like an early delivery. There, there's um, obviously lots of both medical and social stresses going on. Uh, some, you know, there are a number of medications that they sometimes, you know, it's a hard to produce adequate milk supply sometimes for these preterm infants. So in those cases, uh, certainly using donor milk as a supplement is preferable to using like a, a preterm formula, which prevents necrotizing enterocolitis. I don't believe it's really been shown to reduce BPD per se compared That's to formula. Like, this is still this is great. This is like recreating those synergies of neurons <laughs> in, in, in my NICU uh, department of the brain. This is wonderful. And then a the couple are other. They, uh, sorry, go ahead, Chris. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, are, were there uh, were there other treatments that we haven't talked about? That whether well, yeah, you guys mentioned diuretics, which you talked about a bit. Um, fluid management kind of goes along with that. So you might remember. Um, I know I pr- promised before the podcast we wouldn't talk about total fluid, so I won't get into numbers. But uh, we we you know a lot of places you know, and, and it's pretty common practice. We'll like try to limit the amount of fluids these kids get or, or, or restrict them just to this idea of decreasing pulmonary edema. Again, that goes goes in the category of never been shown to be effective, potentially harmful. When again, when I, I said it at the top, and it's it's like it's 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 not that exciting of a treatment, but time and growth, time and good nutrition. So you don't want to do anything that's you certainly don't want to sacrifice calories that these kids are getting and potentially need to fluid restrict them. Um, I think it's sort of an in between is reasonable. We're not like giving them an excess amount of fluids, but you know, extreme fluid restriction that uh, you know at least commonly, you know, and not sort of excluding the sickest kids. Um, it probably is of little benefit. Um, nitric oxide commonly used in other conditions in neonates, like you know, PPHN or uh, persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn, like fabulous therapy, you know, life saving. Um, Routine use, at least in in premature babies, to prevent BPD, never been shown to be effective. Um, Well-read listeners might uh, have heard about vitamin A as um, a treatment, and this is actually chosen in the category of it was shown in trials to be effective, like with a reason, like you know, number needed to treat to prevent a case of BPD of twelve, which is pretty reasonable for an intervention. But when this is like again going back to implementation, so what does that actually mean? These were you know intramuscular injections into these little preemies who have like no muscle mass to begin with, uh, three times a week for, you know, a month and you can imagine high cost. And you can imagine that it wasn't very popular in NICUs to use. And then on top of that, you know, about 10, 15 years ago, there was a shortage. So people couldn't get it because I think the manufacturers stopped making it. So NICUs looked at their BPD rates and they didn't change once they stopped using it. So that's actually fallen out of favor too. Um, you know, the thought is like with other advances in neonatology, then, then that might've sort of improved BPD rates with um, uh, like the non-invasive ventilation thing that, that you know, made vitamin A, um, which by the way, it's the reason the rationale there is it has helps with like some of the respiratory epithelial development. Um, so that, that that's not nearly as commonly used. Very cool. So uh, we're going to continue our journey of our uh, uh, child who uh, named Bobby Parancini. He grew up to do relatively uh, quite well. And you're now seeing him in the Cashlack Primary Care Office. He uh, is four months old now, has been diagnosed with bronchopulmonary dysplasia. 
And his caregiver uh, is saying that he's got some cough and congestion that has required them to go up just a little bit on their oxygen. So he's still at about 0.2 liters only at night, but is now having to use uh, 0.25 liters uh, and maybe even using a little bit during the day. Uh, on exam, he does look pretty tired. He's thickipnic. He's got subcostal and intercostal retractions. Um, on auscultations, he's got scattered wheezes, diffuse ronchi. It's different than his baseline exam. And so uh, we're thinking that this seems typical of a common bronchiolitis diagnosis. But uh, in a patient that has bronchopulmonary dysplasia, what are the important discussion points for uh, one of these kids to have a common cold or bronchiolitis or or how to really do a good exam and assess when they are sick? So it's a great question. And actually, even to take it a step back in terms of some of the routine counseling that we do for these families, taking these infants home, is I really just think this, it's really important to kind of teach the families almost how to go to, do a good respiratory assessment um, and exam. I don't mean like by a stethoscope and auscultate your baby, but, you know, Many of these babies will go home from the NICU with, you know, some of the things you described, frankly, like some tachypnea that's sort of more than a typical kid or baseline subcostal retractions or intercostal retractions. It's, again, more than a typical kid. Um, so I really talked to like the, the, our first visit with these families or even before leaving the NICU, we review this and we say, you know, when, when particularly when your kid is sleeping, because when kids are awake and get excited, it's always tough. You know, it's a good practice to actually learn how to count their kid's respiratory rate and get a good sense of what their baseline retractions look like. Because, you know, as you mentioned, these kids are certainly at risk when they get an upper respiratory infection or a cold for developing a low, you know, lower, a lower respiratory tract and in either infection or bronchiolitis, um, really just, you know, adversely affected by, by these common illnesses. And it's just so important to know what's baseline and what's not baseline for their kid and when they need to seek attention. The other one we talk about is actually their feeding. So if, you know, if it's an orally fed kid, you know, that's kind of like the stress test for, for the baby. And so if they're noticing a big difference in their ability to eat or drink, you know, and um, you know, the work of breathing that, that goes around that or symptoms after feeding, like, you know, cough or wheezing or congestion, um, that could also be signs of, of a clinical worsening. And for these kids, you know, uh, we did a, our first episode on the trip Saturdays was on the bronchiolitis guidelines. And, you know, there's very clear guidance of, you know, no real need for albuterol or steroids or, or x-rays. Uh, but there's very clear exclusion criteria for kids with chronic lung disease. So when these kids are in your clinic, because you're our expert continuity um, status post NICU uh, provider, what is the general sense of how do you treat respiratory distress secondary to to a viral infection, whether it's URI, bronchiolitis, in these kids? Do you do steroids? Do you do antibiotics, albuterol, chest x-rays? What's the yeah. what's the toolbox? Justin, I think you highlighted something super important there, which is, you know, is all all well trained all of us well trained pediatricians really want to be uh, cognizant of you know good evidence based practice with bronchiolitis and really you know supportive care supportive care supportive care and not routine administration of these medications without efficacy uh, that haven't been shown to be efficacious. But as you said, preterm babies are excluded. Um, so we the American Thoracic Society ATS actually just um, put out a new guideline for treatment of, it's called, they call it post-premature respiratory disease, or that's what we called it, um, which sort of encompasses BPD and kind of other, other diagnoses as well. But kind of one of the points we made in, in the guideline was really that 
you know, you have to treat these kids differently and that you should probably, we shouldn't be using the exact same um, practice pathways that we use for full-term kids. Why is that? Well, first of all, their risk is higher, right? So, you know, admittedly, it's a little, it's harder to assess risk now because of, um, you know, RSV prophylaxis pelvizumab, which is quite effic- uh, efficacious. We'll talk about that too. But at least before that, we know that, you know, even kids who didn't have BPD. So if you're born thir- under 32 weeks and don't have BPD, you know, that doesn't mean you're risk-free. That's still probably like a three, four times higher risk of admission with bronchiolitis compared to, um, you know, a typical full ter- a healthy full-term baby, um, you know, and BPD is going to be much higher risk, probably, you know, three to four times that risk. So, you know, somewhere in the 10 to 15 times risk of a, of a full-term baby, you know, and that goes to show it's like the, when they when we talked about definitions earlier and they, they did validation studies, of course, looking at these definitions, look, looking at the respiratory outcomes, and, you know, when we first look at the graphs, you say, all right, well, this fits like the severe kids have the highest risk of, uh, you know, readmission and rehospitalization, but even the kids who didn't have BPD and were preterm, you know, there were some studies that were still reporting 25% needed hospitalization in the first year. And if, you know, that was your primary care panel, that would be, you know, a number that would, that would stand out at you. So, you know, all these kids are, you know, whether or not they have a formal diagnosis of BPD based on that 36-week measure are at risk. So, um, you know, and it's risk of hospitalization, risk of ICU or needing respiratory support. The, so on that note, you know, we know that they start with higher risk. While there aren't great randomized trials by any means looking at albuterol, inhaled steroids, systemic steroids, you know, in treatment for these kids when they have exacerbations. We know some information, at least based on some of the pathology that's going on. So for example, most studies when they look at these kids and if they give them albuterol and there's ways to measure pulmonary function actually in babies, about 50% will end up responding to albuterol, which is going to be much higher than the number than a typical full-term kid. So the ATS guideline that we just put out actually states that, you know, kids who have recurrent respiratory symptoms should have a sick plan with a beta-2 agonist or shorter, you know, short-acting beta-2 agonist like albuterol as needed. Um, you know, for kids with chronic cough or recurrent wheeze, that's an indication for a trial of an inhaled corticosteroid, something like, you know, a fluticasone or budesonide. Um, I think, you know, other systemic steroids, you know, are... Less evidence, we know, you know, from when this is kind of more gets into my practice, we know that these kids, again, are more likely to be albuterol responsive. Um, So, you know, to me, we know that they're a little bit more, I I always find that they're a little bit more likely than the typical full-term kid to really respond to a course of prednisolone. And again, if they're starting at higher risk, if I, you know, hear a kid who's got a clear wheezing illness early on, I think that's going to be, um, you know, likely I would try a, a short course of steroids in them compared to, let's say, a full-term kid. You know, antibiotics, I think, probably have less of a routine indication unless the kid has other comorbidities. So um, we have a lot of kids who have feeding difficulties and aspiration. So that's always something, you know, you have to keep in mind and they're more likely to get, let's say, an aspiration pneumonia. And can I, not to get too deep in uh, the uh, weeds, but for um, a patient, as you mentioned, with BPD, where the underlying pathophysiology is a immaturity delayed growth, and maybe I'm not thinking about it, but I would be surprised that albuterol, the medication for asthma, for bronchoconstriction, for uh, an inflammatory lung disease, would be so effective in immaturity of lung disease. Is there a clear understanding of why albuterol or even steroids can help in these cases? It's a great question. And, you know, when I, when I, let's say, do, you know, teach new conference about BPD, I always show like a Venn diagram with asthma 
and BPD and what are the similarities and differences. You know, ultimately, there's a degree of small area narrowing and, you know, probable some muscle hypertrophy that can, that can occur in both diagnoses. Um, the, I think it's, it's to less of a degree, the hyper-responsiveness than in asthma. So for example, in asthma, sort of by definition, right, 100% of those kids should respond to albuterol. And in BPD, there's probably, this goes back to the idea that there's a lot of different phenotypes, like BPD is kind of a catch-all phrase because it's just defined by their oxygen need at 36 weeks. But when you think about it, there's going to be a lot of different phenotypes in BPD. So, you know, there are kids who will be more of that obstructive disease phenotype like asthma, where we think there is some more, you know, muscle hypertrophy and hyper-responsiveness and are likely to respond to albuterol. But you're right, there are probably some kids who just have small airways, frankly, and they get plugged up with mucus and maybe you get like a small transient effect from the albuterol, but, you know, it, it's, it's more of a fixed obstruction. And in fact, we see that even in the older kids when we do pulmonary function, that it's sort of, you know, this interesting idea that we certainly, a lot of kids with BPD end up with asthma diagnoses later on, whether some of them certainly do have asthma. I mean, you know, it's it's obviously a common condition and, and, you know, there are probably some environmental comorbidities that, that put them at risk for both. There's also, I think we're calling kids who have asthma who probably more have like a fixed obstruction, you know, not to get out of our pediatric world, but maybe even more like, you know, like it's a COPD like disease compared to asthma. (laughs) Yeah. So I I always say BPD is probably more like the COPD of pediatrics than sometimes asthma is. Um, Like much like COPD, there's variable response to bronchodilators, but certainly I would say more likely than the typical, you know, full-term kid. Now, you know, we were just talking, we've just talked about like how we're sort of treating these, these patients. And you said that um, pavalizumab has, has really changed how we're, a lot of these kids have responded can you talk a little bit about pavalizumab and, you know, are, are they all going to get, should they all get immunoprophylaxis with this? Um, and maybe we can even talk about other vaccines as well. Yeah. Um, uh, pavalizumab um, is indicated for prophylaxis against RSV infection in, in these babies. So first of all, it is not a vaccine. It is immune prophylaxis. So it is a monoclonal antibody that's anti-RSV. Therefore, it is passive immunity, right? Meaning that you have to give it basically every month during the RSV season. It's not doesn't teach the kids' immune system anything. So the there's actually pretty strict guidelines that the AAP uh, put out on this, which which we do follow. Um, I'll, I'll kind of give you kind of from my experience where I see, I see it like on kids under 29 weeks, um, born under 29 weeks are in the AP guideline, whether they have BPD or not, or if they're under a year of age, when, you know, for the first RSV season, essentially. So if they're under a year of age uh, at the start of their first RSV season at home, which kind of varies depending where you are in the country, what that is. But, you know, here in the Northeast, it's more or less October, November. You know, that's an indication for for uh, map. So under 29 weeks. I find when I see kids like, you know, pediatricians are fabulous at recognizing this, right? That's like, you know, I, it's it's incredibly rare that I'll see a kid in, as a, you know, in, in pulmonary clinic and that the pediatrician hasn't already applied for um, uh, palivizumab. And frankly, many of these kids get their first dose on the way out of the NICU since we know that the highest risk period is when they first go home. So you want that coverage really for the first month when they go home. Then there's another category, speaking about preemies and lung disease, that's under babies under 32 weeks who have CLD, and the AAP guidelines do define CLD, so it's support for uh, oxygen support for 28 days in the NICU. And, you know, I, I think this can be sometimes uh, a, ca- a miscategory. Um, 
again, this is for the first winter, the first winter at home. So that's a case where we, again, it's per AAP guidelines. There should be, the insurance company should cover this to be clear, but it's a case that not everyone thinks about because it doesn't meet that under 29 week cutoffs. And then kind of it's beyond the scope of this conversation, but there are other indications just worth mentioning, like, you know, uh, certain classes of um, congenital heart defects and disease, um, you know, certain neuromuscular conditions as well. The other case where you know, we, so, so then that comes into play as the second winter. So there are some infants that actually qualify for uh, palivizumab prophylaxis in their second winter. Um, I think this is one where, again, you know, most people don't think about it as much because you need to know the specific indications. So for kids who are require respiratory support, so whether it's kids who are tracheostomy and ventilated, or they're on oxygen therapy within six months, of the start of that second RSV season, they'll qualify for um, palibizumab prophylaxis that second winter. That might sometimes require a letter explaining why that is to the insurance company, but again, they should approve it. It is within the guidelines. And then the other one is actually for kids who are on chronic therapy going into the second winter for BPD. So we've had a lot of success at getting coverage, for example, with kids on inhaled corticosteroids, um, you know, for who, because they have recurrent respiratory symptoms and getting coverage uh, for the second winter as well. Um, you know, and, and I should, you know, we talked about kind of the, the categories and, and you know, I think the clear thing is, is that, you know, the, the evidence is pretty good that palivizumab reduces the risk of RSV hospitalization. It reduces the risk of, you know, ICU hospitalization with RSV. Um, there was this sort of like question of, um, you know, could that actually change the ultimate outcomes, right? If these kids are getting less sick, like might they actually have this better period in the first two years than, than when they're, you know, five and six years old and running around playing soccer, are they going to do better? Um, and, and, you know, unfortunately the data hasn't shown that. So it doesn't look like it really modifies the overall trajectory, but, um, you know, this, that being said, there's, there's plenty of worth if you can keep these kids out of the hospital and decrease ICU hospitalizations. So a little side note, I think we're talking about RSV and other viruses. You know, we are now in a post-COVID world. Mm -hmm. What does BPD look like in this world? Like, I know we don't have a lot of studies, especially in BPD for this, but like, do we see something like Paxlovid coming down the road for BPD patients? Like, like what, what, what does it look like and how should we approach our patients in during this time period. Yeah, let, the, let's start with the non-COVID illnesses first. So I think one of the tricky things that we've had to navigate in the last two years is how other viruses have been very unpredictable in terms of the viral seasons and virology. Um, so for example, if you looked at, at least locally, I know this, if you looked at in March 2020, our RSV positivity rate like plummeted to zero almost instantaneously and it stayed like that for basically the entire next winter. Also, we had, we, 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 it was a, this debate of like, do we give the kids their palivizumab? We did because we didn't, you know, we don't want to, we don't want them to get hospitalized for that. But, uh, you know, we, it was very low very, very low rates of um, RSV bronchiolitis, as you guys are probably well aware, uh, you know, in that 2020 to 21 winter. And then in this, um, depending where you were in the US for in the Northeast, it was it was kind of late summer, um, earlier in other places, we had this like very early peak of RSV. So we actually started kids this past winter um, with their palivizumab prophylaxis. Um, it was late summer, early fall. And again, that was something that the AAP had put out a recommendation, nonspecific, but basically saying, you know, you should consider starting it earlier, and if so, insurance companies should cover it. And then, you know, state state guidelines, um, you know, particularly for kids who are state insured, uh, where you know we're we're kind of quick to cover it, which was helpful. Um, and they ended up getting this 
extended course of uh, many of them for palavizumab because we didn't really know what the season was going to look like, right? I mean, even in, I would argue, in two months ago, I wasn't sure whether those are going to be RSV <laughs> now or not, right? right? And, and there is some because the, particularly with, you know, mask wearing is incredibly effective <laughs> against uh, spread of RSV. So, you know, and, and the same goes for flu, sort of seeing sort of atypical flu season. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a virologist by any means, but, and, and nor do I pretend to have the crystal ball and know what these future seasons will look like. But I think just, a, 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 you know, there, there's roles for humility and following positivity trends and, you know, being being on top of it and being flexible about this, the, the when, when we're starting RSV season or ending RSV season for that matter, and, and kind of when we start their, their prophylaxis. And, you know, I'll be curious to see what happens going forward, especially as society somewhat, you know, tries to normalize around the pandemic. Um, you know, as far as uh, COVID-19 in particular illness in, um, uh, you know, patients with PPD, we have very limited data still. Um, on this, you know, the, so let me start with that and say, like, this is kind of my own experience of what I've been counseling families. Cause of course it's, it comes up as a question and, um, you know, I think there's, there's a few different risks. So first of all, you know, little babies, um, at least some of the initial studies, you know, with the earlier strains of COVID definitely suggested higher hospitalization rates with younger infants. Some of that may have been a little bit kind of cautious medicine, I guess, because the ICU hospitalization rates weren't overly high. It was just general hospitalization rates. But nonetheless, I think it, it just made a lot of common sense of like, okay, well, if you're first taking your baby home from the NICU, you should be pretty conscious about you know any infectious exposure, including COVID-19. I will say we've had a number of, pati- a number of patients with BPD who have had COVID-19. Some certainly get lower respiratory illness with it, like COVID-19 bronchiolitis and, and require some support. We've had a lot of kids who've done quite well with it. We've had kids on oxygen who haven't even had to bump up their oxygen. So it's a very humbling illness. And it's, I'm sometimes amazed by how these kids handle it. Um, you know, I, 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 again, there's a lot we don't know about it. So I'm, I, I tend to be very, you know, I, I'm very cautious about not, not over-interpreting any of that, of course. You know, but I say to parents, I sort of put that in the category of other viral illnesses. You know, you wouldn't want your premature baby with BPD getting RSV. You wouldn't want them getting the flu. You wouldn't want them getting COVID-19. You know, they, so uh, common sense goes a long way as far as, you know, reducing infectious exposures, um, limiting the number of people they're around. You know, I think in some ways as society has kind of gotten used to some of the prevention of Ill, you know, spread of viral illness around COVID-19, a lot of families of premature infants have basically, basically said, well, I've been doing this since my baby, I took my baby home from the NICU. This is not new to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and for, there's something to be said for now, there's sort of this very accepted thing, like, well, if you're having symptoms, don't show up to visit the baby and and, and, and go see them. So, um, and sort of a, a more accepted, uh, at least, you know, I have a young baby at home who is premature. Can you wear a mask? Like, I think that, that so um, those, those are more accepted uh, nowadays, but, um, you know, common sense goes a long way. The other thing, you know, we, we just make sure parents realize the importance of is, is kind of creating the shell, if you will, around, around their baby. So we always say parents and any, any caregivers for the baby should be vaccinated against influenza, and babies can be vaccinated, of course, against influenza after six months as well. And then, you know, nowadays they should be vaccinated against COVID-19 as well. This is excellent. So I think, you know, this is a great overview of, of COVID and kind of other viral risks that uh, kiddos are likely to see, you know, whether they have underlying lung disease or not. This patient specifically did have BPD and was actually on baseline oxygen. And in thinking about these patients long-term in the primary care setting, um, how quickly is oxygen weaned off? Does this protect, predict long-term uh, oxygen or respiratory outcomes or they don't have asthma? Or what other comorbidities are we going to see? How can we, uh, what are we going to look at for the long-term of these of these BPD kiddos? 
Yeah. So specifically for the kids on oxygen, there's actually a number of ways of weaning that off. But in short, we usually kind of um, get kids off their daytime or awake oxygen first and then focus on the nighttime. Um, you know, historically, uh, we've kind of done in clinic weans or ask the parents to you know monitor and give us reports at home just using the home monitors. Usually we could get kids down to about an eighth of a liter and then, um, you know, either go straight off or maybe do sprinting off. So you do an hour or two off at a time and then increase that over time. I think one of the more exciting things that we're participating, we're participating in uh, nowadays is actually um, uh, using remote uh, monitoring technology. So we actually can get um, reports from the patient's home oximeters um, and kind of look at where the distribution of oxygen trends are. And that actually allows us to wean your oxygen off more quickly uh, than it does if we're just doing it based on clinic visits or, um, you know, which, which can sometimes prolong the process. Um, historically, I've, I've told families that on average, again, this is average, so there's a wide range, about three, four months. Again, I think we've been able to move that up quicker for some families. But we still have some kids, there are kids who need oxygen for, you know, 12, 18, even 24 months sometimes. And how about other comorbidities that are associated with some of the bronchopulmonary dysplasia? Yeah, that's a really important question. I mentioned a few earlier. You know, I always say to tell families, like, they're going to be part of this team, you know, with a pediatrician and then the family at the center, of course, but, you know, some of the respiratory uh, comorbidities. So, you know, early on, things like tracheobronchomalacia, which is airway collapse, vocal cord issues. So, you know, other airway issues like subglottic stenosis, um, you know, long-term, I mentioned earlier, asthma. We certainly know that these kids, if you do their PFTs, which is something that we do, so we like to follow these kids at least until sort of early school age so if they can do pulmonary function testing on them, higher risk of obstructive lung disease. Um, that being said, you know, they do very well overall. And I think actually, if you look at the long-term outcomes, there's, there's um, you know, it's, it's probably, if anything, it's not quite necessarily the same as term kids, but still reassuring. The big question, which we just don't know, frankly, and I think this is one of the super interesting things about neonatology is like, what does it mean for their overall life trajectory of lung disease, right? So even if you were to say, well, don't you have adults, uh, you know, that, that were born preterm and say, yeah, I mean, there are studies that report 30 and 40 year olds and what their lung function is, but you know, when were they born? They were born in the pre-surfactant, pre-antenatal steroid era. So I'm not even sure how much they apply to kids now. So this is something that we're going to constantly need to be studying because as we change practices in neonatology, we don't know what those outcomes are for, for some time. You know, other comorbidities uh, beyond the lungs. So Pulmonary hypertension is one that's definitely worth mentioning because that's probably a one of the more important comorbidities to BPD. So that essentially is when there's right ventricular strain because of their lung disease. Um, uh, and and the reason I mention it is that that's one of the comorbidities that's most associated with adverse outcomes and and even more uh, morbidity and mortality in these infants. So I think that's kind of as a much like when we see that that's much higher risk. Those are kids we're going to be much more we're going to wean their oxygen much more slowly. Um, you know, higher risk for readmission, et cetera. And, and they're closely followed by uh, cardiologists. The lungs and the gut are like very connected. So a lot of these babies have issues with feeding, reflux, aspiration is a big one. So you know, I encourage like, you know, particularly listeners going to pediatrics, if you have, um, you know, babies who are born premature, you definitely want to be screening for are there any symptoms or signs of aspiration, whether that be obvious or more silent aspiration and sort of thinking about getting, you know, speech language pathologists, SLPs involved where, where indicated. Um, so they certainly need, you know, these infants will often need nutritionists as part of their team because they're on higher calorie formulas and have higher risks of growth failure. And then, you know, the other one is uh, neurodevelopment, right? It's incredibly important that 
uh, for these babies, you know, and this is kind of the most important thing of all, right? This is why we do what we do is, is to, to get their best, uh, you know, neurologic and developmental outcomes as possible. So, you know, early intervention services make a huge difference and a huge impact in, in kind of, especially thinking about the plasticity of these infants early on. Uh, many centers have neonatal follow-up um, clinics dedicated to assessing their neurodevelopment. And since we know that BPD and neurologic outcomes are so tied together, um, that's an important, you know, we, we make sure that all these infants are plugged into those services as well. One of the big things uh, that is a major mission of our podcast and show is highlighting and showcasing uh, racial disparities or social determinants of health. Um, for kids that have bronchopulmonary dysplasia, can you talk about what these, what some of the racial disparities are uh, in taking these kids homes and what some of the challenges are in, from a health equity perspective? Yeah, that's such a great, great question. And I think that's um, such an important piece to BPD outcomes and frankly, something where there's a lot that we have to learn and, and a lot that we need to address there to improve these kids' outcomes. Um, you know, first of all, I say, you know, just think about the burden in general for these kids. I always say, listen, it's hard taking any baby home. It's hard taking any premature baby home. And it's even harder to take a baby with, you know, medical um, complexity and with BPD home. Um, we work, you know, I think at least the, many of these families are absolutely amazing and incredible in the dedication they have to their babies. As far as some of the racial disparities, there's actually a really interesting story with BPD um, that's kind of being told in the epidemiologic data. So, you know, people might remember from their NICU rotations kind of uh, comparing the respiratory outcomes, at least early on, of uh, Caucasian and Black infants. And that's like, it's well documented. Um, infants born to Black mothers have lower risks of developing BPD than white infants um, who are, you know, uh, born at similar gestational ages. And that's despite the fact that because of risk factors for prematurity itself, there's more infants um, you know, infants born to black mothers tend to be at lower gestational ages. Um, uh, but, but still, even with that, if you look at large cohorts have lower risks of BPD. That being said, once you have established BPD, the outcomes both in hospital and post-discharge of infants born to black mothers are worse. So I think, um, and, you know, specifically what do I mean by that? You know, it's, it's, uh, in terms of respiratory hospitalization, higher odds of tracheostomy, longer length of stay. And I think there, you have basically an effect in totally opposite directions. So that speaks to me to the fact that when you really look at the longer outcomes for these kids, not just their what they're going to be at 36 weeks, it really highlights like the lack of a biologically plausible explanation for those difference in outcomes due to race, um, because it's the, the effect is in opposite direction. And it, it clearly has to do with the social determinants of health and structural differences, right? So whether it's structural differences in the care that's provided in the NICU, is it that there's environmental impacts post-discharge, you know, socioeconomic stresses, of course, that differ. I, I think there's a lot to be learned there about what drives those differences and, and frankly, a lot to be addressed to improve the outcomes of these infants. That's very helpful. That's fascinating to, uh, and seems like a lot of opportunities for research in kind of uh, un better understanding the the complexities of racial disparities in this chair. This is this has been really wonderful. I feel like I uh, wish I had this before my NICU rotation in residency. I think I would have felt much more prepared going in. I think yes. Dr. Nogi would have taken notice. Uh, and so this is uh, this has been been great. Are there are there main take home points that you think uh, listeners should really walk away with um, in approaching BPD in their in either their training or in their patients that they're seeing in the clinic? 
I'm, I'm glad to hear that you don't have too much PTSD from the, this podcast experience. <laughs> um, take on points. You know, I think, like, again, think of BPD as a disease of lung arrest. It's sort of a lo- like interrupting lung development. And the best treatment we have, the best in some ways prevention we have is going to be adequate time and growth to their lungs. And what we try to do is get these kids into this sort of pro-growth, pro-developmental stage overall, and certainly to their lungs in particular. So, you know, avoiding noxious exposures like infections, aspiration, or other kind of inflammatory things um, that can be going on. You know, I think the other, another take-home point would be that, you know, while this talk was about BPD, really all preterms are at risk for some of these adverse respiratory outcomes. And I think you guys pointed this out really nicely with the fact that BPD is like a 36-week diagnosis, but doesn't totally fit what these kids are going to look like after they leave the hospital. So, you know, if you're a PCP or, or you know, a hospitalist or, or any specialty and you see a kid that has this history of being born in 20, you know, eight weeks or 27 weeks, like our, like our, our, our cases here, even if they don't necessarily have a discharge on oxygen or BPD, obvious BPD diagnosis, just think about that these kids are definitely at higher risk than, let's say, the you know another full-term kid you might see. You know, and the last thing I would mention is that BPD again, it's ends up being a little bit of a catch-all diagnosis uh, for kids with lung disease from prematurity, but we know that there are different phenotypes of it, and we kind of we touch upon this a bit, right? There's the kids who have more just their lungs are undergrown. There's kids who have more that obstructive, whether it's asthma or COPD-like phenotype. There's kids who have more of a cardiac piece, like the pulmonary hypertension. There's kids who have more like malacia and large airway issues. So, you know, certainly when we're thinking about these kids, it's not a one-size-fits-all about how we approach them and the treatments that we would use for them. Excellent. I think that's a great way to end it. Um, I think one before before we let you go, I, we always ask, do you have anything you want to plug? Anything you want our listeners to check out? Something that you you, you want everyone to know about? Uh, so we, you know, we in, in Boston, we're very proud to be part of this national, actually international uh, BPD collaborative, which has been growing quickly. It's almost 30 centers now. It's probably more by the time people actually listen to the podcast. Um, but, uh, you know, it's of centers who, who are really taking interest in, in improving the care of kids with BPD and, you know, both the clinical care, doing research, you know, kind of putting together large registries of these kids. So I think that's just going to be a really exciting area where we can, a lot of what we talked about before, how there's a lot we don't know because um, we don't have, you know, whether trials or looking at some of the epidemiology or social determinants of health, that's, I think, going to be very promising in um, cross institutions to be able to look at that and improve care of these infants. Excellent. Well, thank you again for spending this wonderful night. We, you know, Justin said that we learned a whole bunch um, and I really, really wish that I could turn back time and had listened to this episode before my, my Nikki times, but we will pass it forward and hopefully all our listeners now will be able to, uh, Enjoy the fruits of the labor tonight. All right. Well, thank you, guys. It was really a pleasure and an honor to do this with you guys. So I appreciate Tess, Justin, and Chris. I, I appreciate it a lot. Thank you so much for your, for your time and expertise. We really appreciate it. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Uh, you can get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. 
We are committed to providing you with high-value practice change and knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts, or talk to us at thecribsiders at gmail.com, or just tell a friend to come listen. We'd love to have him. A special thanks to our producer for the episode, Dr. Kess Curran, uh, also Dr. Shannon Snellgrove, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you for joining us. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Tess Curran. And this has been Chris, the Chi Man Chi. Thank you and good night. See y'all. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.